You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is a unique fella who I happened to meet uh, in the fall of 2023. He very kindly agreed to come on the podcast. His name is Richard Jones. And what Richard Jones knows about more than anyone else is the atmosphere, the environment, the timeline, and the deeds of Jack the Ripper. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Please tell us a little bit, the Leaders and Legends audience, um, a little bit of your background. And then very quickly, uh, please tell us about how you got interested in probably, if he's not the most famous criminal in history, he's certainly in the photo. My, my interest started really in 1982 when I started doing guided walks around London. And I was doing Dickens, I was doing ghost walks, but then everyone kept asking me, do you do anything about Jack the Ripper? So at the time, I, I really knew nothing about Jack the Ripper. So I started looking into it and I thought, this is absolutely fantastic. It's not just a, a grisly murder case, it's a case about social history and so on and so forth. So I started doing the Jack the Ripper tours. And from that, it's led me into doing two books on Jack the Ripper, uh, including Jack the Ripper and several other books, numerous articles, and appearing in lots of documentaries on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, and over here on BBC and the various other channels. As I mentioned, he's the world's, in my view, the world's leading authority on the subject. Why does, I got a, a million questions for you, both about the social aspect of it, because you're exactly right. But let me ask just a general question. There are a lot of unsolved murders in British history, and you're zooming in from London, I believe, or in its environs. 
There are a lot of unsolved murders in the United States and other big countries. Why does the Ripper fascinate us still? I think the Ripper fascinates for, for several reasons. Firstly, and perhaps mainly, he was never caught. So you have the ultimate mystery. I think it's a, I hate to use the term, but it's a safe set of murders as well, because they're far enough back in the past that they're, they're distant from us. We're away from them. So we've got this murder mystery that anyone can look into and anyone can come up with their own solution and have little fear of contradiction. But at the same time, it's an era that people are fascinated with. It's the Victorian era, the era of gaslight and fog. And so consequently, I think it's a combination of the atmosphere, a combination of the mystery, but also of the history that it gives us the the opportunity to peek into. You mentioned several people asking you about it on your other tours. Did you ever ask them, why are you asking about Jack the Ripper? Like, why are you interested in them? I do. I'm f- I am absolutely fascinated by why people are fascinated by Jack the Ripper. There have been murderers since who've had a higher victim count than Jack the Ripper. They are grisly murders. They're gruesome murders. But why are people so fascinated by him? And that's something that I've always been really interested in what is it about these murders that a grabbed the public's imagination back then and has remained in the public imagination ever since and the honest truth is i can't come up with a solution different people want it for different things and perhaps that's it the jack the ripper murders can be anything you want them to be they can be a murder case they can be a murder mystery they can be your window into social history in victorian london They can even be a way of looking into human psychology. So they can be all things to all people. Murders took place in the late 19th century, 1880. Queen Victoria was, had been on the throne for 45 or so years. Uh, She was clearly uh, the dominant figure in uh, British history at this time. There was a nascent sort of police force. There was new technologies, new forensic technologies for police to use. What do you think of this time period in general as a real sort of turning point? I think there's a book about British history during this time, and it's called The Age of Improvement. There were a lot of things happening in in England that you wouldn't think would be connected to someone who's a criminal like Jack the Ripper, including immigration, for example, cleanliness, sanitation. I know it's a big question, but Talk a little bit, please, about about what was going on and how that fed into the frenzy. And then when you're done with that, I'm going to ask you very quickly about newspapers, because they certainly did. Yeah, the friend, what's happening in the Victorian era is the Victorians, and especially Victorian London, it's grown rapidly, vast expansion of London throughout the 19th century. By the end of the century, the population will have really gone up to somewhere in the region of five or six million people. And going from a relatively, not small, but certainly a relatively small city or town early on in the 19th century, suddenly you get this massive population increase. And it happens at the time of great social change and technological change as well. So you see the Industrial Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, 
And that those both brought problems with them in that it saw a rise of destitute poor in the big cities. So the Victorians started to grapple with this. What could they do about it? And yes, they made mistakes, but at the same time, they, they really did. We could learn a few lessons off them today because they really did try to grapple and solve the problems that confronted society. So gradually you can see a transport system evolves around London. The age of the commuter is born where people don't have to live close by where they work. The railways have made it possible to live away from work, but they've also made it possible then to commute into work. So you see the birth of the commuting classes. You also see the birth of the underground as well to get people across London. The British Empire is ever expanding and London being the financial sitter, uh, sorry, London being the financial city is the boiler room that's powering that expansion financially. So there's fortunes being made People are getting richer or some people are getting richer. And yet the terrible thing was that within five minutes walk from the wealthiest square mile on earth, the city of London, right on its doorstep, you had this area of Whitechapel where people lived in terrible conditions of poverty. A huge number of the children born there were destined to die before they reached one year old or even five years old. So childhood mortality was massive in the area. You had men and women living in terrible, overcrowded conditions. And people were seen, for a lot of the times, they were seen as commodities who were worked for long hours by their employ by their employers. Uh, to get as much out of them as they possibly could. But what that led to at the same time was a radical radical movement that saw effectively the birth of the trade unions and trade unionism. And all that's happening in the background as the Jack the Ripper murders begin. We talked a little bit about technology, industrial revolution, but there was another revolution taking place at the same time. And for better, for lack of a better term, I'll call it the information revolution. How did newspapers play a, how did they grow during this time, expand their influence and expand their influence to an ever greater population that was literate? The newspapers uh, saw a massive increase in, from about the 1860s onwards. Up until then, there'd been uh, attacks on newspapers. So newspapers were very expensive, and they were often beyond the reach of uh, ordinary working people. And uh, to be honest, a lot of the ordinary working people were illiterate, so wouldn't be able to read them anyway. But you, two things had then happened. They'd taken the tax away off the newspapers, and people were starting to be not brilliantly educated, but they certainly had a semblance of education. And you had an ever more literate population. The newspapers then began to increase in number and the newspapers were competing for readership. And what they discovered very early on was sensationalism cells. So you have this or this explosion of newspapers that are trying to cater to particular needs, but at the same time to sensationalize things such as murder, such as poverty. And you've also seen the birth of a new type of journalist that had never been around before. And that was the investigative journalist. That they that was that was that came about from about the 18th 1960s, 1870s onwards. And these were journalists who would literally go in and see how the poor lived. Nowadays, perhaps the best example, and the one we know best today, is Jack London, the American author, who in 1902 came to London and went undercover in the East End, disguised as just one of the poverty-stricken people of the area. But in fact, he was at the long line of a list of people like the Green, the, the Greenwoods, who were 
literally doing something that had never been done before. They were living poverty. People, it had been around before, people had been reporting on poverty, Charles Dickens, Henry Mayhew, they'd all written about poverty, but they were observers. Whereas what people like uh, James Greenwood did was they lived the poverty. They actually went undercover and went into the workhouses. They went into the slum districts and they became part of the community and then wrote to their experiences. What that did was then create a fascination with poverty that led to, for example, slum tours going around the East End of London where uh. wealthy people could go and look at people or the poor in their natural habitat. And one thing that we do know from the Jack the Ripper murders is American tourists were uh, coming over and one of the things they all wanted to see was Whitechapel because of the press coverage of the Jack the Ripper murders. They really wanted to see, could this area really be as bad as it's portrayed in the newspapers? We know that they were being taken into the area by police officers, by philanthropists, and they were being shown what that area was like. They began to focus attention on that area. They'd done it before the Ripper murders began, but when the Ripper murders began, it increased dramatically. And so Jack the Ripper became... He's often called the world's first serial killer, which he wasn't, but he was certainly the world's first media murderer in that the crimes were reported all over the world on an almost daily basis. And it's because they, and very early on, the newspapers found that these murders could sell papers. So the, the, the more they sold, the more that they would do more about the murders to sell more copies. And thus, they really did impact and make the murders famous throughout the world. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is author, historian, and world's leading Jack the Ripper scholar, Richard Jones. You mentioned Whitechapel, and that's, it would be inaccurate to say that's where it all began. But in some ways, the Whitechapel murders, which took place around this exact same time, lit the fuse for a lot of what came afterward. So correct that statement if you want. And then if I'm right, then just go ahead and talk a little bit about the Whitechapel murders and how that started. That, that was the kindling for the fire. The, the Whitechapel murders were, the Jack the Ripper murders are part of the Whitechapel murders. They started in April 1888 when a lady called Emma Elizabeth Smith was attacked. And she was attacked by a gang, probably, at the junction of Brick Lane and Osborne Street, which was literally just off Whitechapel Road. Now, she survived that attack. She staggered back to her lodgings, went to the hospital. It was a brutal attack, and she died of the injuries at nine o'clock the next day. Now, her murder was the very first murder on the police file called the Whitechapel murder file. And at first, it, it, it did shock people because it was a horrible, it was a horrible assault that had been perpetrated on her body. But um, it didn't really shock people as much as the later murders would. When she died, as I say, the police opened this file called the Whitechapel murder file. And then nothing happened until August 1888, when on the 7th of August, a lady called Martha Tabram was murdered. Now, this was a horrible crime. She'd been pepper-potted from the throat to the abdomen by 39 stab wounds. So it was a frenzied knife attack. And that murder started people thinking something quite untoward was going on in Whitechapel. Then we go a few weeks uh, forward, 
And on the 31st of August, a lady called Mary Nichols was murdered in Bucks Row Whitechapel. And again, these have all taken place within a very short uh, distance of each other. You've got this concentration now of three murders that's happened. And Mary Nichols is she's the first of what are known as the canonical five victims. So then a week later, Annie Chapman's murdered in Hanbury Street on the 8th of September. And then there's a gap to the 30th of September when we have the night of the double murder. And that's when Elizabeth Stride was murdered in Berners Street. Again, a short distance away. It's not in the exact area, but it's a few streets away over on the other side of Commercial Road. And that same night on the eastern fringe of the City of London, Catherine Eddowes was murdered. Then the whole of October went past, no more murders. And on the 9th of November, Mary Kelly was murdered in her room in Dorset Street. That was the most gruesome of all. And that, that, that's a murder that even today is still shocking when you see the photographs of her lying on her bed uh, dead on the bed in Miller's Court. Those five victims, Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Kelly, they are generally held to be the five canonical victims. Then on the 20th of December, a lady called Rose Milet or Kath Catherine Milet was murdered in Poplar. Now she was... Uh, she appeared to have been strangled, although there was some debate as to whether it was actually a murder or it was just an accident that she'd accidentally strangled herself. There was some debate at the time, but she's the next one on the list of Whitechapel murders. Then in July 1889, a lady called Alice Mackenzie had a throat cut. She was murdered in Castle Alley, just off Whitechapel High Street. Sorry, just off Whitechapel. Yes, yeah, just off Whitechapel High Street, just a stone's throw from where the other murders had taken place. Then we have another murder, which probably belongs to a different series of murders, but was classed as a Whitechapel murder victim when a the torso of a woman was found in a railway arch in Pynchon Street. And that's the Pynchon Street torso murder. And then finally, on the Friday, the 13th of February, 1891, a lady called Frances Coles was murdered in Swallow Gardens, which was a railway arch over close to the Tower of London. Uh, so those are the Whitechapel murders. There's 11 in total, and five of those 11 are the canonical five who we consider to be the victims of Jack the Ripper. But there's a lot of debate as to whether some of the ones we think were victims of the Ripper weren't, and some that we don't think were victims were. It's confusing. <laughs> it is a spectacular job in, in detailing it for the audience. How pervasive was crime in London during this period of, of this sort of, of murders? There's always going to be thieves and knaves and rogues and fights, but murder of this sort, was it frequent in London during this time? Murder of this sort, to the degree that this mur these murders uh, went into the mutilation, etc., wasn't common. One of the things that horrified people about these crimes was there was no motive. As far as they could see, the motive wasn't robbery. As far as they could tell, the victims hadn't been raped. So as far as they could tell, the motive was the pure pleasure of carrying out the mutilations. So that type of murder itself wasn't, wasn't actually prevalent. However, murder itself was. There were lots of murders, mostly drunken brawls. People would get into fights outside pubs and then the violence would escalate. And a lot of people carried knives in those days. That's one important thing that 
virtually everybody had a pocket knife on them. And so you get into a violent altercation and suddenly out would come the knives. And of course, when that happens, then inevitably you're going to get murder. So you had a lot of drunken brawls. You had a lot of domestic violence and people dying as a result of domestic violence as well. So that sort of crime was common. And there were several murders that year that we don't, that most people don't know about now, but they happened in all parts of London of husbands killing, wives killing husbands and people having fights and punching somebody who would then hit their head on the pavement and die as a result of the injuries. So murder was quite frequent. Violent murder was frequent. But this type of murder, the mutilation type of murder, wasn't common. And that's why these murders shocked people the way they did. You mentioned the five women were A, why are they known as the canonical five? And B, is it true that most or all of these women were prostitutes out of basically desperate poverty? The reason the, the canonical five was a term coined by a writer called Martin Fido, who in 1988, he wrote a book called The Crimes, Detection and Death of Jack the Ripper. And he was the man who coined the phrase the canonical five. Everybody's used that phrase since to describe the five victims who are the five victims of Jack the Ripper. Personally, I don't like I don't like that. I don't like the term, but it's a term that everybody uses to describe them. What's the other bit of the question? Sorry. Let me ask another quick question. What was, which term do you think would fit those five victims best? And the other question is, do you think the Ripper chose these women because they were basically impoverished, desperate, and working as prostitutes? They um, Did the Ripper choose them? Oh, that was your question, wasn't it? Were, were the victims prostitutes? It's a tricky one, this. There's been a... For, for many years, ever since at the time and ever since, it's generally been accepted that the victims were prostitutes. There's been a, a change in thought on that in recent years, ever since a book called The Five came out uh, by Hallie Rubenhold. And that book, she argues that the majority of the victims weren't prostitutes. They were simply women who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, she claims, for example, that Mary Nichols was actually sleeping in the gateway in Bucks Row when she was murdered. Personally, I, I, I think, I, I don't like the term prostitutes to describe because they weren't what we today would think of as prostitutes. So they weren't sex workers per se. I like to think them as survivors because basically these women were women who'd fallen through the net. They were impoverished. They were all alcoholics. And there was nothing to catch them. If your life fell apart back then, there was no welfare. There was nothing. You just went through the net and you ended up trying to survive. And that's what these women were doing. And I think the whether they were prostitutes or not, it's a moot point. We can't say definitely. They weren't what people would perceive as prostitutes today, but they were women who were surviving. Personally, for example, with Mary Nichols, we know that she was seen at 2.30 in the morning on the 31st of August by a lady called Ellen Holland. And she actually said to Ellen Holland that she'd made her, she, Mary didn't have the money, the fourpence to pay for a bed in a common lodging house that night. The coffin was, bed, which I always love that term, the coffin bed. They would just sleep the in the these. Co the coffin beds. <laughs> but she, now what she actually did, she did say, Emily said to her, why don't you come back to the lodging house and I'll get you a room? And she said, no. And she boasted that she'd made the money three times over that day, but she'd spent it another probably on drink. She said, well, come back to the lodging house. She said, no, I'll get the money. And she staggered off at 2.30 in the morning. Now, she evidently 
was going to get the money somehow. And there can't be that many other ways for it to have got the money at that time of the morning. So personally, I believe that what happened was that they she met the murderer. She, the, one of the important things about the victims is that uh, it wasn't the killer who chose the murder locations. It was the victims. The victims knew the places where they could take clients to, where they weren't going to be disturbed by the police or whatever. So they knew the places uh, to go to. So they chose the perfect locations for their murders. And basically that that's what I think happened. I, I think that, that I personally think they were prostitutes, but I think they were survivors. I much prefer the Victorian term for them, which was unfortunates, because I think that really does sum up mm. what they were and why they were living as they were living. Should mention very quickly that Hallie Rubenhold has been a guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast. She was terrific. She's a phenomenal historian. Um, is it also a mark of evidence in favor of the prostitution theory in the sense that they would obviously leave with a man? If they were at a bar or someplace like that to apply their avocation, there wasn't a lot of romance involved. I've got the money because it didn't one of the one of the victims get asked, will you? She was overheard a conversation and a guy asked her, will you? And she said, yes. And I forget which victim it was. And then they left. Yeah. And she was never seen yeah, again. That, that yeah, that was Annie Chapman. She was seen outside number 29 Hanbury Street. Her body was found in the backyard of that house half an hour later. She was seen by a lady who came out of Brick Lane and she walked past number 29 and saw a man and woman outside the doorway. And as she passed them, the man said to the woman, will you? And the woman replied, yes. And from that brief overheard uh, conversation, she deduced the man had been a foreigner. But it was just a couple chatting outside a building. At the inquest, the coroner was somewhat credulous about it. He said, you weren't suspicious to see a man and woman talking outside at that time of morning. <laughs> and she said, no, I see them all times of the morning. So, and so she just carried on her way, not thinking anything of it. And then 30 minutes later, the body of Annie Chapman was found in the backyard of number 29 Hanbury Street. Let's talk a little bit about the police and the investigation and the techniques. All of us who are huge fans of Sherlock Holmes during this time period of Victorian England, it, it really seemed to be an acceleration of the use of technology as what they saw was advanced technology back in the late 1880s. How would you grade the police for their effort? And did they, in your opinion, ever come close to bagging him? I think the police maybe did come close to bagging him. They probably didn't realize they'd come close to bagging him. We even have this problem today with serial killers. that the, uh, You often find the serial killer has been questioned several times by the police. He's there on the radar. They haven't put two and two together. They've not connected the dots that lead them to that particular serial killer. So I think the police maybe had maybe questioned Jack the Ripper or had Jack the Ripper maybe even in custody at some stage in the investigation. As for the police investigation, the, the police force was... I want to say a fledgling police force, but they've been around since 1829. But the Criminal Investigation Department of Scotland Yard, to whom... The who were in over in overall charge of the investigation, they'd been reformed in uh, 1878. There'd been a scandal when 
several detectives were found being in the pay of a gang of swindlers at the race courses. Uh, and this had resulted in the trial of the detectives. And from that, a man called Howard Vincent reformed the detective department and it was turned into the Criminal Investigation Department or the CID. Now, the detectives themselves, I, I, I think... Given the resources available to them, they did a reasonably good job. You can't obviously say they did a successful job because they didn't catch Jack the Ripper. <laughs> but they, they did a good job with what was available to them because Robert Anderson, who was the assistant commissioner and the head of the criminal investigation department, he said at one stage, he said, for one murder to occur in London where the murderer leaves no clues behind is unusual, but for a whole series to take place where no clues left behind is unheard of. Yet this is what was happening. The police had no clues to go on. And of course, they didn't have any forensic in those days, even fingerprinting, although it was around, it wasn't a standard part of police of a police investigation. So consequently, what the police did do was they would carry out a search around the crime area, which of course police would do today. Uh, only thing was they didn't seal the crime area off uh, in several cases. So Mary Nichols, for example, within an hour of the body being found, it had been taken away and the area had been cleared uh, cleaned down. Uh, a police officer just turned up and just swilled water uh, and water had been swilled at the scene. So consequently, they not they haven't quite got the concept of a of a, what we would have today a crime scene investigation but what they are doing is they are looking for anything at the scene is there any clue at the scene that can lead them to a particular uh, person then they'll start looking at the victims who was the obviously they've got to identify the victims and when they identify them they were certainly looking into their antecedents people they knew did somebody have a motive for killing that per for killing them? Uh, so, because in the majority of murder cases, the victim knows the murderer, so they'd be looking at that. Then they do door-to-door -door investigations, questioning people in the area. They go fan out into the streets and question anyone they met, and yet they couldn't find him. Uh, and the reason probably is because even today, this sort of serial killer is very difficult to catch. There's nothing to link them to the victims. There's, and with them, there's no clues being left behind. They haven't got forensics or anything like that. So consequently, the only thing they could do, which is what they did do, was they flooded the area with police officers. They kept people under surveillance. They, and just hoped beyond hope that the next time he struck, there'd be a police officer on hand to catch him. But that never happened. And so the murderer got away with it. In your opinion, was the investigation, the intensity of it and the breadth of it and width influenced at all by the social and economic status of the victims? In other words, if this had been the Duchess of Devonshire, Maybe they would have done th things differently. This was a point that was made several times. Uh, it was made by several uh, philanthropists in the area. It was also made at the inquest into the deaths of several victims. That had these murders been taking place in the West End of London, then the authorities would have taken them a lot more serious. It's a difficult. It's a difficult thing to say because perhaps early on, yes, that was the case. But as the murders gained. Uh, publicity as they were reported on more and more then the police came under terrific pressure to try and catch the killer so the police certainly from the from annie chapman's murder and most certainly from the night of the double murder the 30th of september they are pouring as many resources as they can into the hunt for this killer so i think it could be a charge leveled at them very early on but i don't think it's something that can be leveled at them uh, after 
certainly after the 30th of September. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is historian, writer, tour guide extraordinaire, Richard Jones. And we're talking about thank you the, the great, you're welcome, sir, the great mystery that remains, and that is the identity of Jack the Ripper. How did the the political class in Great Britain react to this? You know, we just had a conversation very quickly about the poverty and the 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 treatment and the conditions of the East End. But did it rattle the leading political class, the the prime minister and the and some of the aristocracy in a way that they hadn't been rattled before? I don't think it rattled the political classes that that much. They were certainly concerned about it, and questions certainly were asked in Parliament about the murders, about the conditions in the area. Even Queen Victoria got involved by pointing out that they really should be lighting the back streets. And at one stage, the one famous quote from her is that she writes to the Prime Minister and tells him that our detective force must be improved. They're not what they should be. So even the Queen's getting involved with it. Certainly politically, the politician who probably had most impact on it was the Home Secretary, Henry Matthews. The Home Office... The, the police come under the Home Office or and came under the Home Office at the time. Henry Matthews was the Home Secretary, so he was the minister at, at the Home Office. One of the things that came out very early on was that the Home Office was petitioned to offer a reward for information that might lead to the apprehension of the killer, and they refused point blank to do so. It was standard Home Office procedure. They the, Their argument was that if, if you start offering rewards, especially in poor areas, people are going to come forward with information that's completely useless just to try and get the money. Consequently, that they didn't see any benefit to it. And the Home Office was constantly throughout October being being petitioned, particularly by the Vigilance Committee led by Mr. George Lusk. They were being petitioned to offer a reward. And they kept writing back to Lusk saying, no, we, we don't offer rewards. And in the end, Lusk wrote to Queen Victoria that the letter went to the Home Office and then the same person replied to him as replied to his earlier ones. But either way, the the, the, the political classes became more concerned, I would say, probably with what the murders exposed, i.e. the horrendous poverty that was present in the district. And I think that's probably what the political classes uh, became more involved with. But also the political classes were, involved, were, were very wary, not just of, Jack, not of the Jack the Ripper crimes per se, but they were very wary of the poor of the area because the poor were starting to get together, they were starting to protest. And the previous year, November 1887, the poor had actually started camping out in Trafalgar Square, very close to Whitehall, and they'd started protesting. The Home Secretary ordered Sir Charles Warren to ban, to take control and to ban the poor people from protesting in the square or gathering in the square at weekends. And the Social Democrat Federation decided to challenge the ban. And on uh, Sunday, the 13th of November, 1887, 
they held a demonstration and the police just went in mob handed and it became known as Bloody Sunday. And that really did turn the radical press against the police commissioner, Sir Charles Warren. And from that point on, they were looking for any chance to have a go at Sir Charles Warren and to have a go at the Home Secretary, Henry Matthews. Of course, when the Jack the Ripper murders started less than a year later, this gave them the perfect opportunity to have that go. So consequently, there was a political and politicized element to the murders as well as a criminal element. I read a couple of articles in, in preparation for this interview, and one of them made the point, and I'd like your thought on this, please. This was like the first criminal profile where they tried to figure out who this guy was based on his actions, the brutality of the murders. Is that a fair, I guess we can't really know the answer, but is that a fair assertion? And please talk uh, to the audience about what that criminal profile of Jack the Ripper said. It, it was uh, basically what, what happened was that uh, after the murder, after the double murder, Sir Robert Anderson had uh, Robert Anderson. I mentioned him earlier. He was the head of the criminal investigation department, effectively the assistant commissioner at Scotland Yard. Now, after the double murder, he sent an, an well, he sent a, a request to Dr. Thomas Bond, and Dr. Thomas Bond was the police divisional surgeon for Scotland Yard, and basically he. Um, Anderson sent him a request and he sent him the post-mortem reports for the previous murders that had taken place, the murders of Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. And he asked him to look at those murders and say, did he think they were done by the same hand? Now, when he was compiling his report, the murder of Mary Kelly happened on the, on the 9th of November, 1888. And Bond was then called in to do a post-mortem report on Mary Kelly. And the next day, he submitted his report to Robert Anderson. And he said that the four murders he'd looked at and the murder he'd just committed, or just done the post-mortem on, were, in his opinion, carried out by the same hand. And he then goes into detail about the person who he thinks committed the murders, saying that if he doesn't live alone, he certainly lives with family, and the family might well be aware of what he's doing. And it's Dr. Bond's criminal profile of the killer. A lot of uh, psychology students and criminology students still study that profile to this day. They stop uh, Bond's profile. And it, interestingly enough, he says that those five are the five that were murdered by the same person. So it's often said that he was the person behind the idea of the canonical five, the idea that we had these five victims and five victims only. And some people point to the fact that he doesn't mention Martha Tabram or Emma Smith, the earlier victims, in that report. He doesn't because Anderson didn't send him any post-mortem reports on them. He sent him the reports on Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. He carried out the post-mortem on Mary Kelly. And it's often said that uh, Bond believed there were five victims and five victims only. However, what a lot of people miss is that when Alice McKenzie was murdered the next July, Bond was called in to do the postmortem on her as well. And Bond actually gave his opinion that she had been murdered by the same person who carried out the previous set of murders the previous year. So obviously he thought there were six victims and he didn't see the reports or oh, he might. 
he probably did in the end, but he wasn't asked to comment on the deaths of Martha Tabram and Emma Smith. Any speculation on your part as to why Jack the Ripper was never caught? I think he was never caught because he was lucky. He was, uh, he, he he may well have had a knowledge. Uh, I personally think he was a local. I think he was someone who lived in the area. And today, when we look at that area, we tend to look at we we see it as a sort of an area of wide open streets: Whitechapel High Street, Whitechapel Road, Commercial Street, Commercial Road. Yeah, they were round at the time. You then go into the back streets around Fournier Street. But what we don't see are the horrendous, narrow, dark alleyways that riddled the area at the time. So consequently, if he had knowledge of those alleyways, there's absolutely no chance that the police are going to catch him if he can make his way through the alleyways and escape. And people often think that the streets were deserted at the time, but they weren't. There was a lot of people. There was, For example, there were over 80 slaughterhouses in the immediate vicinity where the murders took place, and they worked through the night. So you had a lot of people around in bloodstained clothing. That was, that was quite a common sight. So people wouldn't have been particularly surprised to see somebody wandering around in bloodstained clothing because you had the slaughtermen. You had people coming in for the market. So Spitalfields Market, you had people walking to us. So it, it, it was a busy area by night. You had obviously you had a lot of homeless people as well. So there were people sleeping in doorways, sleeping in, in, in wherever they could sleep, basically. So consequently, you get you, you get this. The, the idea we have is of this deserted area where it would have been easy to catch him, when in fact it was an area riddled with alleyways. And there's a very famous story, I think it's Henry Moore, who got visited by an American police chief. And the American police chief had been boasting, if these murders took place in my city, mm. then uh, we'd, we'd, have, we'd have him under lock and key within a few minutes. Moore took him to Whitechapel and showed him one of the murder scenes. And he turned around and apologised. He said, in my city, one of my men can stand on one corner and see what's going on for miles around. He said, here, I'm st- I can't even see what's going on just a few feet away from me. <laughs> That's how bad the area was. The presence of all the slaughterhouses, is it fair to say that led to the speculation that Jack the Ripper was a butcher of some sort? Oh, yeah. There was very early on, people thought he might be a slaughterman. And uh, in fact, one of the things the police had to do, which was a, uh, many of them found a particularly horrendous task, was they had to visit all the slaughterhouses and interview the slaughtermen. And uh, a lot of them said that, the, that they never forgot the smell <laughs> that, that, that they mm. they encountered when they went inside these places. Because what we have to remember is there was no refrigeration then. So you bought your meat f- as close to the door, meat was slaughtered as close to the time it was going to be eaten as, as possible. So consequently, the scenes of cattle being herded through Whitechapel day and night was quite common. And I think one of the uh, clergymen in the area, the Reverend Samuel Barnett, he made the point that it, it, it's no surprise that these murders have started because children are growing up seeing slaughter, seeing the seeing slaughter on a daily basis, seeing the blood, the gutters run red with blood. So it's no wonder that because everyone, funnily enough, for decades before, everyone had been focusing on Whitechapel. Uh, there were worse parts of London, more violent parts of London, Notting Hill, Notting Dale, Southwark, even parts of Marylebone and Westminster were as bad, if not worse, than Whitechapel. But the press had been focusing on Whitechapel for decades. And so consequently, this idea had come about that if something wasn't done to check the conditions in Whitechapel, inevitably, something horrible is going to come out of the district. And of course, when the murders started, those prophecies in many people's eyes had been realized. 
Jack the Ripper wasn't known as Jack the Ripper at the beginning. It's in my view, it's a very interesting story as to how uh, that name was affixed to him, either by the media or by him himself. It, would you like to just tell us a few little nuggets about that? And then the other letters that were sent in the speculation later on, I think it was in the 1930s, a journalist said that we wrote the letters because we wanted the media frenzy to keep going. Well, what, what was interesting about this was that technically, Jack the Ripper never existed. There never was a killer called Jack the Ripper. There was a Whitechapel murderer, but the name Jack the Ripper came from a letter which had been sent to a news agency in New Bridge Street in the city of London, the Central News, which had been sent to them on the 27th of September. And that letter was the famous Dear Boss letter. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talked about being on the right track. He then goes on to gloat about what he did to the previous victims, what he's going to do to future victims, and he signed the letter, Jack the Ripper. Now, when they first got that letter, they thought it was a hoax, so they ignored it for two days. But on the 29th of September, they sent it to Scotland Yard, they sent it to the police. And in the interim, just after the police received it, the 29th of September, the 30th of September, the night of the double murder occurred, and the press criticism of the police increased dramatically. So the police were desperate for a breakthrough in early October, and they made the letter public. And that letter went up on posters outside police stations. It was released to the media. Facilities of it were appearing in newspapers all over the world. And that name was so chillingly accurate, it caught on. And from that point on, he was never known as the Whitechapel murder or leather apron as he'd been in early September. He had become Jack the Ripper. And from that point on, these murders achieved a almost a sort of a, a, a legend, or the murderer achieved almost a legendary status, and it turned five sordid East End murders into an international phenomenon. Do you have any opinion on the statement in the early 1930s from a British historian, or excuse me, British journalist who said, we wrote letters just because we love story and we wanted to keep it going? There were several journalists who were suspected of having written the letter. The police themselves very early on said that in the in this letter, they detected the stained hand or the stained finger of the journalist. And in fact, it was, inter it was interesting, actually, that there's a journalist at the time called George Sims who wrote for a newspaper called The Referee. And within a week of that letter appearing, he made a very good point. He said, look, he said, dear reader, he said, if you were to send a letter, you would send it to a newspaper. Whoever sent this letter didn't. They send it to a press agency. So in other words, whoever wrote the letter knew how the press worked. Send it to a newspaper, it gets local coverage. Send it to a press agency, it goes out on the wire and it gets international circulation. So consequently, whoever sent that letter knew how the press worked. So the police were convinced it was a journalist. However, several people came forward. First of all, uh, in, in the early 20th century, Chief Inspector Littlechild, who was in charge of special branch at the time, George Sims had sent him a letter inquiring about a particular suspect, a, a Dr. D. 
And he wrote back and he said, I've never heard of a Dr. D, but I've heard of a Dr. T. And he's referring to this guy, Tumblety, Dr. Francis Tumblety is a, the American suspect on Jack the Ripper. But he also says that the letter signed Jack the Ripper, uh, it was known at Scotland Yard that it was the work of a journalist. And he said that their suspicion was that Tom Bullen of the Central News was the man who'd sent the letter. So in other words, it was a journalist from the Central News itself. And he apparently had a drink problem when he was in his cups. He would later on talk about it. So that's one. The, the last, next one was the one from the 1930s when a chap called Best, and again, this is all uncorroborated, so we don't know, but sure. he said that he and a he and a companion had actually come up with the letter simply to keep the case going uh, when he was, I think he said, a penny liner, that he actually worked uh, a penny a liner, which was for people who wrote for a penny a line for newspapers. And it was just a good way of selling a story and keeping the story going. But I have to say, it's all second, third hand gossip. Uh, it's not ascertained fact. Why did the Jack the Ripper murders? cease in your speculative view has to be speculative because because obviously we don't know who jack the ripper was so we don't know why he ceased what happened and of course we don't know that they did cease we we that's a good point we they could have happened he, one theory is he moved somewhere else there were several murders in america throughout the 1890s and into the early 1900s, where people were saying, is it Jack the Ripper? Has Jack the Ripper returned? And you can go through the American newspapers on the, uh, I've uh, I forgotten the name of the archive, but the American newspaper archive, you can look through several murders that take place across America during that period, and they are drawing con connections. Is it Jack the Ripper? Could this be by Jack the Ripper? There's murders in Germany, murders in France, there's, mur there's murders in the West Indies, there's murders in Australia that all are being looked on. Um, they're questioning, could it be Jack the Ripper? So there's a possibility he went somewhere else and continued murdering. And so we don't know for certain they did stop. If they did stop with Mary Kelly's murder, then the chances are that something happened to the killer to stop him murdering. So it could have been that he committed suicide. It could have been that he died from natural causes. It could have been that he was caught by the police and was locked up and got all put into an asylum. And they didn't realize they had Jack the Ripper. And that's a possibility. Of course, the other possibility is they did catch him and they kept it quiet. Why would you think that would be uh, an option? <laughs> There's all sorts of uh, reasons for uh, that people have come up with why they would keep it quiet. Uh, Inevitably, there's the conspiracy theories that it was a member of the government, it was a member of the royal family, so therefore they kept it quiet because they didn't want a royal scandal or a government scandal. Uh, the other possibility is, which I think could be quite a real possibility, is from very early on in the murders, there have been a lot of anti-Semitism in the area mm -hmm. because there was a huge Jew, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish immigrant community living in Whitechapel who were very unpopular at the time. And when the murders started and the, the, the press had uh, come up with this leather apron who was supposedly running an extortion racket and carrying out the murder uh, amongst prostitutes and carrying out the murders. The press had really demonized this leather apron character. And the leather apron was a garment that was synonymous with the Jewish community. Tradesmen wore leather aprons. So consequently, the Gentile population put two and two together, made seven and thought it's a different type of crime. It can't be an Englishman doing it. It's got to be one of the foreigners, one of the immigrants. So consequently, anti-Semitism starts the service in early September. And we know then the police did take two steps back and they realized that if they kept pushing leather apron, 
that they might that they could easily have a pogrom in the east end of London. So consequently, they from that point on they start almost tampering with the evidence. If someone said that a particular suspect had a Hebrew or Jewish appearance, it would turn up in the police reports as foreign appearance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and of course, the famous thing is that graffito in Goulston Street, when after the double murder, they're chasing him back through the streets and they found the messages scrawled in chalk on the wall of the Wentworth Street uh, model dwellings that said the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing or the Jewes or the Jew, however you wish to spell it. But it's Horribly misspelled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and we didn't even know how it was spelled because different police officers remembered different spellings. One said it was J-U-W-E-S, another J-U-E-W-S because Sir Charles Warren wouldn't let a photograph of it be taken because he was afraid that if it was seen the next morning, then it would be lead to anti, a resurgence of anti-Semitism in the area. So if it then came out that they had got the Ripper and he was a member of the immigrant community, but he was insane and being sent to an asylum, that could have led to even worse writing in the area. So for that reason, if the police had caught him, they might have just thought, we've got him. Why risk innocent people losing their lives if we announce that we've got him, but we're just sending him to an asylum? The last question on this topic, before I ask you the five questions we ask all of our guests, the most famous suspect, if that's the right term, for Jack the Ripper is the son of the Prince of Wales, who became Edward VII, the grandson of Queen Victoria, and his name was Prince Eddie. A, what do you think of that theory? And B, of all the people who were interviewed, whose names with whom you are familiar, who do you think is Jack the Ripper? Prince Eddie uh, or Prince Albert Edward Victor. He was Queen Victoria's grandson. He was also the heir presumptive to the throne of England. And had he not died in the influenza epidemic in 1892, then he would have been king. He, he would have been a king of England. But as for him being Jack the Ripper, I just don't see it myself. We do know his whereabouts on the nights of the murders. For example, we know that he was up in York. He was at one of the barracks in York on one night. We know on the night of the double murder, he was at Balmoral in Scotland and he was seen on the night of the 29th, and he was seen the next morning at, at breakfast. Now, even today, to do that, to get down from Balmoral and the Highlands of Scotland, get to London, carry out two murders, <laughs> and then get back, it would be uh, quite a push. And so it's always good to think, but no, that there's no no evidence to suggest that it was Prince Albert Edward Victor, and there was a real royal cover. But of course, people like conspiracy theories and the idea of a, a mad member of the royal family I don't know. They've, they've got enough of them without having to have Jack the Ripper amongst their number. <laughs> so, as for who I think it is, my personal belief is that the one I've always thought is a likely contender is Aaron Kosminski, because there is a Kosminski who turns up on the list of suspects named by the police. And the two highest ranking officers on the case, Robert Anderson, who I've mentioned earlier, but also another man called Chief Inspector Swanson, who was the person who had the big picture. He was the one who assessed all the information that came in. And Anderson, in his memoirs, said that they had caught Jack the Ripper and he was a low-born Polish Jew living in the heart of the area. Swanson, in his memoirs, names that low-born Polish Jew as someone called Kuzminski. doesn't give us his first name, but Martin Fido, going through the records in the 1980s for his book, The Crimes That 
detection and death of Jack the Ripper, he found the only Kosminski in the records that fitted the description was Aaron Kosminski. So consequently, Aaron Kosminski's name is up there on the list of suspects. Although, and it's often said that because Anderson and Swanson both appear to suspect him, then he has to be high up on the list of suspects. The only problem is that Aaron Kosminski's known asylum records, he doesn't strike you as the sort of person who, who would carry out the be able to carry out these crimes. He's very disorder. He's eating food from the gutters. He's hearing voices. He's guided by a higher spirit. So there's a consensus now that we might they might have had they might have had a Kosminski or a similar sort of name that they thought was Jack the Ripper, but it's not Aaron Kosminski. We've actually got the wrong Kosminski. I think there's another suspect, though, that doesn't get mentioned a great deal, and that's a man called Thomas Cutbush. And he was named in 1894 in a series of articles by the Sun newspaper. They don't name him. Sorry, they, they don't name him. They say that they've met Jack the Ripper. He's in Broadmoor Asylum, and they've been to see him. And they describe him. And from what they describe, they're talking about Thomas Hayne Cutbush. Uh, Cutbush had been sent to the asylum in 1891. He was charged with stabbing several girls in the bottom around Kennington to the south of the River Thames. But he's interesting because when you look at his asylum records, which have been made public now, he is a very violent person. He's pulling knives out. If he gets hold of a knife, he's threatening to rip people apart. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. On one occasion, his mother went to kiss him goodbye and he bit her on the face. So he is a very yeah. violent person. So he's someone who should be looked into more. But I think... <laughs> On the whole, I would have to say that it's probably none of the suspects whose names have been put forward. It's probably somebody who lived in the area who everybody thought was a little bit odd, but who they thought was harmless. But every so often, the voices in his head proved too much and he would go out and commit the murders or there would be a trigger that would lead him to commit the murders. Are you somewhat surprised, given, given human nature uh, as it is, that when this case became, when these murders became a worldwide news phenomenon, which they clearly did, that nobody stepped forward to say it was me. Is that does that surprise you, or does notoriety lose out to being in jail for the rest of your lives? It seems that when some of these actions get so popular and get so much news media coverage and become this sort of frenzied cult status, that's when someone pops up because they want to be. They want that notoriety. They want that publicity. Interesting enough, quite a few people at the time did pop up to say they were the killer. Most of them were drunk. Some were insane. But there was a, there were an awful lot of, as often happens with these cases, an awful lot of people did confess and say, oh, yeah, I was, I'm was i the white. I've carried out the murders. I've done this. I've done that. And the police would always look into them and they always uh, ruled them out as suspects. I, I don't think the murderer himself would have would want to come forward. I don't think he was particularly obviously insane i think he was reasonably controlled so consequently so consequently i, I, I think that he basically wouldn't have wanted the, the notoriety notoriety wasn't his thing he did it obviously for the pleasure of what he was doing and so in consequence of that i don't think he would have sought publicity which is why i don't think the letter was in fact written by the killer modern whether it's dna testing or all sorts of other tricks, modern criminology, the technology is there to, to keep this case in the public view. Is the case still considered open 
And in your opinion, is there any chance of a breakthrough giving, given modern forensic technology? Officially, the case isn't considered open, but unofficially, it is. It's very much considered open. Every year, if not every month, books or suspects come forward, and cases come forward for a particular suspect. Officially, the case is not open, but unofficially, the case is open and will continue to be open because it really does fascinate people. Personally, I don't think we've got any chance today of getting anywhere near knowing who he was. We can come up with suspects, we can look at things, but the problem we have today is all the evidence has disappeared. And if we don't have the evidence, then we can't put a case forward against a particular suspect and say that person was Jack the Ripper. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Richard Jones, are you ready? I am indeed. What was your first job? My very first job was delivering a pop, delivering soft drinks for a company called Corona Soft Drinks. When I was 16, I used to, it was a weekend job and it was Saturdays and Sundays. And I used to work from 6 a.m. till 3 p.m. And I loved that job. Done a hell of a lot of walking in your lifetime. I, Number two, what was your first concert? The first concert I ever went to was The Who in uh, at Bingley Hall in Staffordshire in 1975. I bet that was pretty good. If you could suggest... I, I, any... I can always remember the noise. My ears, When I came <laughs> out, I couldn't hear ringing. a thing. <laughs> Number three. Keith Moon was fantastic. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? On Jack the Ripper or generally? <laughs> generally, either or, either or. Generally, I would suggest Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? The Great Fire of London. 1666? 1666. Number five, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? It would have to be Bob Dylan. It's a very unique, very strong answer. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Richard Jones, who I consider by his brilliance in his his storytelling and and his enthusiasm to be the world's leading authority on the Jack the Ripper murders. It's very kind of you to Zoom from the mother country over here to the colonies. Thank you so much, Richard. It was a fascinating discussion. I just enjoyed it so much. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com 
That's Robert at VeteranStrategies.com. Strategies.com.